I'm Nils Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest on this episode is Anna Hammond, the founder and CEO of Matriarch Foods, a social and environmental impact food business that upcycles farm surplus and fresh cut remnants into healthy, shelf-stable vegetable products for institutional food service. Matriarch is building a circular food future, creating products that solve for inefficiencies in the supply chain while combating climate change and providing greater access to healthy food at scale. The first time I heard of Matriarch Foods was while moderating a keynote panel at Plan-Based World Expo in December 2021, where Susie Weintraub, CEO of Envision Group, which is part of Compass Group USA, who was on the panel, was touting their partnership with Matriarch Foods while talking about how Compass Group is working to be more plan-forward in an attempt to meet their sustainability goals. There are so many things to love about what Matriarch Foods is doing, but I find their approach to partnerships with leaders in food service and retail particularly interesting. Anna and her team position their products as a solution that can help players like Compass Group and Kroger meet specific goals and targets around zero waste and sustainability. This strategy reminded me of how nonprofits approach their advocacy campaigns that are designed to bring about change from within organizations. Matriarch Foods takes some of the best ideas from the nonprofit world and applies it to building a very unique food company versus trying to compete with established players in the industry. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Anna Hammond of Matriarch Foods. Anna Hammond from Matriarch Foods, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today. So I know you've had a long uh, winding road into the food industry. And so I'm always curious about what makes someone who spent the bulk of their career doing mostly very different things um, get interested in food systems issues. So when and how did you first start to get interested in uh, issues around the problems with our food system? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a question of like when and how, and then there's sort of the question of one's history, right? So, and I and I don't think I've ever started an interview really talking um, so much about like my history and how I grew up, but there's a very important piece in, in my in my growing up that is related to, to food systems and, and my sensibility around, you know, around the environment, around farming, around, you know, people's lives as they are related to the environment. So when I was a kid, we used to spend a very uh, good, a good amount of our time in the summers in Deer Isle, Maine, which is in Penobscot Bay. My father was a writer. So he had his summers off. My mother was a, a teacher for quite a long time. And <clears throat> we rented this little cabin um, on the ocean in Deer Isle. And my father um, happened to be friends with uh, Elliot Coleman, who, you know, is very well known now, but then was not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Elliot had just um, 
uh, gotten a little piece of land next to Helen and Scott Nearing uh, in Harborside and started the, his first organic farm with, with, his, uh, with his first wife. And so we went and bought our produce from that farm on the weekends uh, for, you know, part of July and August when they were first building it. And so, you know, I have this ideal memory of this back to the land space where, you know, people were in harmony, kind of growing beautiful vegetables and braiding garlic and hand painted signs around the farm stand. Um, but as importantly, you know, the quality of the food was just unbelievable. And this is, you know, this is Maine in the 19. I guess it was probably early 1970s, but we started going in in the year I was born in 1961, where, you know, despite uh, the fertility of the land and the fishing community, you know, people in Maine were lucky to kind of eat a rutabaga, rutabaga in a you know little store like wrapped in cellophane. But then this kind of back to land movements was starting to happen then, or sort of like the first wave of it, I guess. And so we really enjoyed the fruits of that, but also had the experience of the idealism of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my father was an amazing cook. My mother is European. She was born in Czechoslovakia. She and her family came to the United States as political refugees uh, after the Second World War. And he, he actually taught my mother how to cook. Um, but cooking and sitting down to family dinner every night was a huge thing. And so in the summers, you know, we would like, you know, get our own fish from the sea and dig clams and get mussels. And then we would go over to, you know, the Coleman farm and get like these incredible, beautiful vegetables and flowers and everything else. So, you know, sort of from my childhood, I just have this, um, sense of beauty and peace in nature and also that it's possible to have a great life doing that. Of course, since then, I know way more, <laughs> you know, way more. And, you know, obviously, you know, have observed industrial agriculture and, and how it's destroyed, you know, so, so much of, of the world. And um, but also, you know, sort of I've been very interested in the back to the land movement of the 60s and 70s and then sort of the return to farming, you know, of the current generation, and I think in the 60s and 70s, it was much more of kind of like a drop out mentality of like, you know, leaving the city and going and homesteading and, you know, having these small communities and building, you know, building good lives. Um, and I think that the current sort of back to the land movement is much more engaged and active, you know, from a global perspective of like wanting to, you know, make things better overall and not just escape society. So I think that's, you know, there's some interesting juxtapositions there. I also think that the food movement of the 60s and 70s, some of which really established a lot of harm in the environment, you know, big food companies, was based in a post-war mentality of, you know, needing to feed a lot of people in rural areas and at long distances. And how do you do that efficiently? So all these efficiencies of our food system that have come to be incredibly destructive, you know, we're not all done from an evil perspective, mm -hmm. you know, the building of roads, the building of large scale infrastructure, but also at the time, you know, this sense of abundance, 
that you that that everything was abundant so you could throw stuff out. You know, it's like it didn't matter if you only used an eighteenth of the vegetable or a third of the vegetable because the main thing of like making food as fast as possible and getting it to people was and making a lot of money, of course, too. So I'm not idealizing it, but it's good to understand how we got to where we are now. Because also it makes us realize that it's not so long ago that this was built, which means that we can rebuild it. It's not this monolith that exists that's, you know, that's, that can't be dismantled. Um, and so, you know, so I, I kind of keep those things in my head. So, it, so that was a, li- a little bit of a wander on like how I got here, but more sort of like what sits in my soul as, as like the ideal is, is this, you know, sense of beauty and nature and, 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 you know, and farming. Um, but how I got here to, you know, to build matriarch is, you know, obviously the, the kind of story of my career, I guess, but most recently, um, you know, after spending many years in the nonprofit world, um, you know, sort of building access to art programs for youth and, and working in museums and being an artist myself, I, um, I left the art world and I, I uh, had the opportunity to work in politics for a very short period of time as a speechwriter. Um, and I say I had the opportunity because I sort of chose to do that thinking that I might have a you know, might sort of pursue politics. Very quickly realized that was not for me. But I did uh, get involved as a community liaison for the person I was writing speeches for. Um, with I got involved with a group of farmers in Rockland County, which is where I used to live, uh, who were trying to get a piece of legislation passed to be able to farm on county land as a way of providing food for the community. And so through a year of working on that piece of legislation, which was in fact um, passed, and we then built the Rockland Farm Alliance, which was a small, you know, small and now growing group of, of local farmers, you know, um, uh, growing food for the community and, and having some sort of community-based CSA programs, really started to just get very interested again in, in food and food systems. And right after I got involved doing that, I, I um, sort of found, <laughs> found my way to another sort of, you know, strange coincidence of, of meeting people. Uh, and I was, I was uh, hired to build a program, uh, a healthy eating program for youth and families uh, living in public housing uh, in New York City um, in relationship to a farm program that was in upstate New York and in the, in, in the Hudson Valley in Kinderhook. Uh, and that program was called the Sylvia Center. Um, and I, I came to the program. I, you know, basically built, built the relationships, built the curriculum, uh, promised the, the, um, the, you know, the found, the founder that I would sort of stay on for a couple of years to build, to build that with her, um, and a wonderful group of people that she had sort of, uh, gathered to do that. And, uh, eight years later, <laughs> that program was in all, all five boroughs and in, in community centers in New York city. Um, in addition to in, in, uh, the school districts in, in Columbia County. Uh, and sort of through that program, really, or through building that program, you know, part part of what we did was broker relationships between farmers upstate New York uh, and community centers for farmers to be able to donate their produce because there's always tons of extra produce, nowhere for it to go. And while doing that, just realize the incredible difficulties of 
just getting extra, you know, A, that there was so much extra food that was going to waste, B, so many people who wanted access to healthy food but didn't have it, and then C, just like these, you know, the no logistics mm -hmm. to get it from one place to another, and very little processing to turn that into shelf-stable food that would make the transportation easier because it didn't have to be stored as fresh. Now, that's a really accordion way, you know, a, a very, very shortened way of telling, you know, telling the story of how I got from here to there, but basically like seeing this enormous amount of excess and incredible need for farmers to have extra income. Mm. So, you know, the whole notion of donating, you know, while I am very supportive of philanthropy and I think that philanthropy does many wonderful things you know, farmers need income and should have income for their labors built, you know, growing, growing and harvesting food. And, you know, as we all know, there is a, just a dearth of accessible, healthy food in this country. And, you know, 40, over 40% of people suffer from diet related illness. So it just seemed like the most obvious thing to do in the world was to build a business around, you know, making healthy food out of food that would otherwise go to waste, mm. creating extra revenue stream for farmers and finding a way to get that healthy food to people who need and want it uh, in an affordable way. I think it's really interesting that you ended up um, arriving at or sort of narrowing down your focus on the issue of the excess in the food system as a means to tap into that to address the accessibility problem uh, in the food system, uh, almost rhymes. But um, I, I think that, you know, so, so I'm curious because you mentioned the back to the land movement, both in the 60s, 70s, as well as sort of its resurgence in recent years. Would you say that that entire movement ha is, has sort of failed? I mean, I know it's a, it's a, it's a tough question to answer, but I feel like a, even now there's, a, there's some, there's a bit of a discussion and it has been the discussion in the, amongst food advocates and people who care about transforming our food system that we've ended up in this place where we are now dependent on this highly industrialized uh, monolithic system, right? And there's, I still seem to get a sense that a faction of the uh, movement of people that are interested in bringing about change still hold this romanticized view of like, we can just go back to how things were meant to be and we can dismantle this entire thing and remake it. There's no proof that that was ever done before. What's the proof that it could be done now? Um, mm -hmm. Because I look at your solution with food waste as sort of accepting that this is a system we have and let's try to improve on it as a means to perhaps dismantle it. I, I don't mm -hmm. want to put words in your mouth, but I guess I want to mm -hmm. just compare the the back to the, to the land movement uh, versus something like what you're working on now, it seems very much embedded in the current food system. Like it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the wastefulness of the current food system. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the interesting perspective, although I, I, have, I will make some corrections to that in terms of what we do and, and sort of the, the bigger picture of what Matriarch is working on. So we do, you know, I, I mean, I think that there is a lot to be, adapted from even the bad things of our food system. Like the fact that we have roads in this country, 
you know, means that we can move food. Now, we don't have to move it 3,000 miles. We can move it 200 miles, but we do have good roads, you know, and and we do have technology now, which we didn't have, you know, in, in, in the 60s and 70s, which is, allows people to communicate, allows better systems for understanding, you know, how much food we have and where it is and, you know, and where it needs to go. So I really think of, you know, the, the current um, uh, revision of the food system as being about sort of taking the good things from the past and the good things that we've learned through building, you know, building these systems and adapting them toward a better future. I mean, large scale food production, you know, if done well and if revised, could potentially feed millions of people, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so we're working with some very big companies to reimagine, reimagine the way that they make food and, and think about like, what can you do with some of these byproducts that create additional food or additional products? But we are also working with small to mid scale farmers because, you know, that's a, that, that small to mid scale farmers are the resiliency that we need and and nothing has has taught us more about that than the last you know two and a half years of of being living in a pandemic where you know there are food shortages everywhere you know you know supply chain broken down cost of transportation you know through the roof and so we have to bolster our local food systems in order to create the resiliency we need for the future. Um, and I think that the, you know, that, that the current uh, systems that we have in place um, can help us create the conditions for connecting smaller scale farmers toward the production of more locally produced food. And I think, you know, one of the things that I, I feel is promising and something that is, you know, is a kind of core project for Matriarch is, you know, there's no mid-scale processing in this country. Like basically, you know, if you're a farmer, if you're a small to mid-scale farmer, you have a very limited market. So, you know, you can take yourself to a farmer's market. You know, maybe if you get, you're lucky, you get a contract with some food service provider. You know, there's some big distributors that are sort of trying to work on that right now. Um, but so much of your product produce is going to go to waste because you just don't have anywhere to sell it. And there's, you know, you can maybe make some jams and pickled things in your own kitchen or a commercial kitchen, but there's no like effective system of mid-scale processing. So that's, that's something that we're working on, on thinking about and designing. Um, but meanwhile, you know, we can also push big food companies to have better practices, to put, you know, better environmental um, processes in place to think about their waste streams, because now customers are demanding, you know, more sustainable products and that food travels less far. Um, and so those companies are looking at sourcing, you know, mm -hmm. more locally, what does that look like? And once they start to think about that, true logistics are going to have to be put in place because right now it's still easier and cheaper to get things from far away. But when the price of gas goes up, mm -hmm. that's no longer true, you know? So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of high gas prices. I know that's completely, 
<laughs> no one will agree with me there. But, you know, I mean, gas in Europe has always been expensive. And so, you know, people are much more thoughtful about how they use it. Um, you know, some, sometimes having less or having things be more expensive makes you think more about, you know, about how you use your resources. Um, yeah, I think that's so interesting that uh, I think what you've, if I could just sort of um, paraphrase that or summarize what I I took from that is that maybe the original back to the land movement, as you mentioned earlier, was about opting out of the system and and sort of rejecting the pa- in, 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 industrial path of our food system pretty early on as it was was evol- it was evolving in the U.S. Um, and I think this new wave is almost. I hope so, is recognizing that it's sort of too late to opt out. You do need to work on things that sort of sit outside the system, but the only way you can bring about change is finding a way to integrate it into this uh, industrial machine that we sort of are uh, all victims of at the moment. So I think I think it's the more pragmatic approach. It now, now how to bring about the change and change food companies and their entrenched practices and their you know, mostly platitudes around what they are going to do by certain years to address uh, food waste or climate change is a whole different matter. And I think now now probably is a good time maybe to pause and maybe explain what Matriarch is. What's the mission behind the company? Why did you, why did you f- specifically focus um, on the solutions that you're, you're working on? Um, and then we could take it from there. Yeah, sure. I want to say one more thing, though, about sort of the, the, you know, the back to land movement of the 60s and 70s and sort of the back to the land movement now and, and engaging, you know, I, it's, it's rare anymore that I think the media is our friend. I, I can't even think of, a, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's almost like heretical to say that the media is our friend. But in the case of being able to create a movement toward positive change, I think that the media can be our friend. And I think that the media in the food space is our friend because most of, you know, awareness of how bad things are, but the obsession with good things. And, you know, it runs the gamut from kind of like crazy, like, you know, obsession with, you know, food, food on Instagram, but also, you know, young people, middle-aged people, older people engaging around food and sustainability is really gaining momentum because of, you know, because we have access to media. And that is putting pressure on big companies because, you know, they have to respond to the market and media helps create that market. So, you know, that's why, I mean, that's where I sort of feel like, you know, I, I wouldn't say that the back to the land movement of the 60s and 70s failed. I just think it was, you know, a very different perspective mm-hmm. on engagement um, in the world. And, and, you know, a global, you know, the notion of a global economy was very different then than it is now. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of positives, at least potentially, and, and certainly in the food system, to engage the global community around positive change and forcing positive change through, you know, through the market. So, 
Um, I just wanted to say that about, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, sort of, you know, my, my hopefulness around what's happening now. Um, so matriarch, what do we do? Um, you know, we upcycle, I mean, sort of in the most, you know, sort of quick, <laughs> quick phrase, you know, we upcycle farms, farm surplus and, and fresh cut remnants into healthy products for food service. Uh, we've developed a really interesting uh, supply chain, uh, working with large fresh, fresh cut facilities um, to, you know, we purchase uh, remnants uh, and we turn those into in, into various products. We have an, uh, our first product was an, uh, an upcycled vegetable broth concentrate, and and that's made from, you know, the tops and tails of carrot, celery, onions. Um, but it didn't just happen overnight. I mean, you know, it we were we. I mean made relationships in the old fashioned, just literally calling up fresh goods facilities and saying, you know, what are you doing with your, with your remnants? Of course, most people wouldn't necessarily say they were sending them to landfill, but you know, they're definitely like sending them to compost. Um, so they're paying for that and, you know, paying pretty hefty tipping fees and went to visit a number of places and saw the operations and sort of helped them envision ways to maintain those products as food. Mm-hmm. And when I, and I see use the language of that very specifically because, you know, a whole carrot, when it comes into a place, all of that carrot is food. You know, a third of it may get used to make carrot sticks. Same with, you know, same with a bunch of celery. The center third of of that entire bunch of celery is carrot sticks. But the top and the bottom are still food, even Mm -hmm. if they get thrown out. Um, So we basically devise, you know, help them devise systems for capturing in the same way that they were capturing the the main product that they were selling, uh, you know, the remnants, um, the rest of the vegetable with all of the traceability and all of the compliance documents necessary for us to work with a co-manufacturer to turn those into food safe, shelf stable products. now, you know, when I say that now, it sounds so complicated and it was so complicated. And it's one of those things like if you knew going into it how complicated it was going to be, you would never do it. But you're just kind of like, oh, OK, so I need to get that piece of paperwork. You talk to the person that's like, yes, well, you know, if we can get this list of documents and we can pay you X, you know, for these remnants, which will save you money from the tipping fees that you're spent, you know, that you're spending and you'll be making money back on something you've already spent money on, uh, you know, plus the packaging that it takes, you know, to move that product to, to be manufactured. So we really developed a a business model Mm -hmm. for manufacturing facilities to make money back on money they'd already spent and save money on tipping fees, which is, I think, and also, of course, have the sustainability story to tell. And that story is also worth money. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, you know, that's maybe that's down into the detail of, of sort of part of what we do. And then we also work with small to mid-scale farmers and aggregators who are focused on on surplus. So, you know, we work, we've worked with Hungry Harvest. Um, we've worked with some private aggregators who are really, you know, looking at, um, you know, seconds, you know, slight, slightly imperfect vegetables um, and, and, you know, looking basically like looking for markets for those. 
Uh, and then we're also, you know, now that we're, I mean, it's only four years since I launched this company. I can't believe that. It feels like 50. Um, <laughs> maybe that's just, some, I feel like it's 50 today. But, um, you know, we started to get calls from people saying, you know, I am dumping 2 million pounds of tomatoes every year because, you know, the buyer that I usually work with doesn't want, you know, X size mm. or a little yellow spot or whatever. Could we work together to utilize them in some form? I mean, that's an actual story. And, and so we're now, you know, we're now working with a grower aggregator processor uh, and utilizing the two to three million pounds of tomatoes uh, that they were, you know, previously sending to landfill. So, you know, we're really over the over the last few years, we've really developed a pretty interesting supply chain that is growing, but probably as importantly, a methodology for utilizing these products um, and doing it relatively regionally. So mm -hmm. things aren't traveling as far, you know, and really try and keep um, the, the whole vegetables that we use within 200 miles of the co-manufacturers we work with. And then the remnants are the same thing. So the, the um, fresh cut facilities are also within, within actually 150 miles of our co-manufacturers. And one of them is actually just across the lot. So, you know, we're very conscious about, about the miles that the food travels as well. The, the more I hear you explain what you did, it, the, the more complicated it seems because what, and, and maybe you can clarify how much of the supply chain did you have to build out or, you know, so for, for, let's take an example of a, you know, fresh cut facility uh, when previously they were probably just discarding that or composting it was probably going to our landfill. When you came in and offered them an opportunity to maybe earn some revenue on that discarded produce, were are you now? Do you have the infrastructure to collect that and transport that? Is that something that you do, or you? How is that managed from a from a supply chain standpoint? Because that in itself is a it's not a cheap thing to do. No, well, but they have the infrastructure because that's what they're doing. Hmm. It's just you. It's just expanding, expanding their capability to include this as a product, really. Um, you know, and some of it. I mean, you know, for example, like in one case, we've bought these um, large plastic recyclable bins that we move product back and forth with. It gets washed and then it gets sent back. So, in you know, in that way, we're not we're not using cardboard and plastic. Um, that gets thrown out. So, you know, that's, that's new and that's something we want to be, I mean, we're able to do that because of the volume of product that we're moving. So the investment in that, mm -hmm. you know, that piece of our own infrastructure and we own those, we own those large, you know, they're basically melon, you know, plastic melon crates. Um, but we reuse them, you know, every time we move whatever 40,000 pounds of tomatoes. So, um, it's building, I mean, it's still, you know, we're still a very young company mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, but, you know, I think that we've laid the tracks for systems that are absolutely scalable. Um, and, and which is, you know, which is why it's working. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting concept in terms of, um, because, you know, we'll get to the products that you develop with the, with the, with the discarded or excess food. But what's interesting is that you, 
and depending on who you contract with, you you I'm assuming you don't have. Uh, I guess in some cases, maybe you have an ability to forecast exactly how much you would get of a certain vegetable. But I think it probably would be important, depending on the products that you create with this, uh, for you to be able to, if you suddenly end up with potatoes and you actually don't need that many potatoes, um, you know, how does that work into how either you focus on developing certain products that you have a lot of flexibility in what goes into it? Um, How do you maintain consistency in the manufacturing side of things, I'm just curious, given that it sounds like uh, the more people, more, more farms and fresh cut facilities hear about what you're doing, the more variety of produce you're going to end up with uh, that you I mean, know, you've I got think to find a more, use for. It's more, it's more than that we end up with is that we have access to. Mm. So, you know, I think, and I've said this, you know, I've said this before, you know, what, what is maybe a little bit different or maybe a lot different about uh, Matriarch from other food companies. And maybe, you know, this is true of upcycled food companies, but very, very much so for us because, you know, almost 90% of our ingredients are upcycled as opposed to like, you know, one part of them. Yeah. Um, is that we, is that I, you know, I, I looked at what, what is out there that is in excess, what is out there that's being thrown out. And from those, you know, from looking at those numbers, develop the products. I mean, in the same way that, you know, a good home chef like goes into the refrigerator after, you know, their CSA arrived four days ago and they look and they're still like, oh, I've got a lot of, you know, I've got a lot of rutabagas and I've got a lot of celery. What can I make from that? Well, it's not as small as that. So, you know, you've got a fresh cut facility. They've got, you know, 300,000 pounds a week of vegetable remnants that they're throwing out. That means you can have a pretty consistent Mm. supply of, you know, the three main ingredients that you want to use. So it's really more of, you know, this very large scale pantry of available surplus Mm. that we have to work with, which means that, you know, and, and we are, you know, we are producing at a commercial scale. We need 40,000 pounds of, of, uh, celery tops. That's not even, you know, a third of what's available in one week. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, we start off looking at like, what are the large scale available products, build our products from build, you know, build our, our products from that. And, and, you know, I, I, you know, people are like, are you ever going to run out? It's like, I hope we run out, but when we run out, we are going to be like a global size company. You know, it's, there's that much out there. I mean, if you think about, you know, people are so like almost like inured to this statement of, you know, 40% of our food is wasted, but think about like visualize that instead of just saying it, like roll off the tongue, like stop for a minute or 30 seconds and picture in your mind what that actually means, you know, and yes, much, you know, I would say at least, I think it's, it's whatever 50 or 60% of that 40% is, you know, lost in the home, Mm -hmm. you know, it's post-consumer waste, but at least 20% 
if not 30, of all food that is grown never leaves the firm gate. So, <laughs> you know, there is, you know, we're talking about food shortages right now. And, and, you know, we are, you know, we are in, we are at war. Our world is at war right now. The United States is at war with Russia, even if it is just by proxy. Mm -hmm. There is going to be hunger all over the subcontinent this, you know, starting very soon. Um, you know, there's hunger in this country. There's, you know, hung hunger is everywhere. And the fact that that much food doesn't get made into usable food for people is, is just, it's just, I mean, insane is the wrong word. I, it's a word that I use often. I, it's just, it's evil. You know, it's just so wrong in every way and even more so every day. So, you know, figuring out ways to use what we already have, you know, what we already are growing is just an imperative. It's also there's, you know, many other reasons for that. I mean, not only is it a waste of resources, but every time food isn't used, more farmland is, mm -hmm. you know, is purchased or, or more land is used to grow more food that isn't used. So if you can use everything that's already grown, you're also going to reduce, you're going to reduce the growing mm -hmm. footprint of farmland globally. And how do you convert this into, um, so, so here's, that's one side of it, right? You've got the surplus yeah. of food, we you almost can look at it as you have access to raw materials that now you can convert into a potential product but for it to truly have an impact you've got to be able to sell that product so tell me more about the decision to initially the, the kind of product you launched with and and what are you doing now with the surplus food that you acquire or have access yeah. to so you know again maybe it's you know slightly different from from most uh, startup food companies, we decided very early on, um, really at the beginning, it was, it was sort of the, you know, the, the main focus of, of the, of Matriarch was to develop um, food products for food service. So schools, hospitals, food banks, places where people are fed on a large scale every day. And, you know, first and foremost, that decision was because, you know, most food that's served in, in places, um, you know, uh, large scale food, food, food halls, you know, isn't very healthy. Um, and people who eat, you know, in schools and hospitals, unfortunately, are not being served the best food. Um, so we really thought there was an opportunity from a health perspective to make an impact there. Um, and also from a volume perspective, you know, a, a school can feed, you know, 3,000 or 10,000 students mm -hmm. a day. That's a lot of surplus that's, that's getting, you know, that's get, getting back into where it belongs, which is feeding people. So the first product is a vegetable broth concentrate. And it really was, you know, as I described before, from observing in these fresh cut facilities what was being thrown out. And, you know, I just saw carrots, onions, mm. and celery, and I was just like, oh, vegetable broth. <laughs> I mean, that's what you make vegetable broth. Why would you throw that out? Um, you know, we don't strain it, so it's pureed actually into the product, which is also a bit different. Um, so, and and really, you know, like I said before, it really is like what what's out there, what can we make from it? 
So, you know, we're making a passata, uh, we call it passata plus, which is basically pureed tomatoes, you know, a little bit of roasted garlic and salt. It can be used as the base of a tomato sauce, a pizza sauce, a tomato soup, a simmer sauce, you know, anything in food service that uses a tomato can use that sauce. Um, so we're really looking at, at products more as ingredients um, and, and then as like, you know, a finished specialty item. Um, and because that's where the, you know, that's where we can use the volumes and that's where, you know, other food service chefs are creative. They don't always have time, but they have recipes and they can, you know, put 40 pounds of, of upcycled tomatoes into something and it's delicious and it's a fresh product and, you know, they ready to go. And, and what's the advantage for them? Is it cheaper to acquire um, the products versus no. using something else? It's not cheaper than, than commodity products mm. now. Um, I think, you know, what is the advantage? You know, the advantage is that customers are demanding that food service be more sustainable. And so, you know, working with Matriarch means that they can say, you know, we're doing something very concrete uh, to contribute to sustainability, like obviously in addition to many other things, but from a from the perspective of, of you know, procurement as a way to increase sustainability. And that's growing, you know, I think in the ne- in the coming years. And I mean, we're working with, you know, Compass Group, the largest, mm-hmm. you know, food service company in North America, Food Buy, the largest GPO owned by Compass Group. You know, we work with colleges and universities, um, you know, hospitals and, and, and other, you know, other large food service. And everyone has customers who want to know, what are you doing? What are you doing around sustainability? So right now, the, the you know, the incentivization is really, you know, the story, um, and being able to point to an actual, you know, an action that's mm-hmm. also connected to a story. Now that over time is going to have to change. And it's something that, you know, we're working with our partners on that. Like, what is the amount of spend that you're going to commit to meet your sustainability goals? But as companies have started to make very public commitments to sustainability goals, like whatever it is, you know, zero waste by 2030 or um, 20% of our procurement will be, you know, in sustainable products, they know that, you know, that's going to come with a cost. Um, Now, that cost definitely, you know, sometimes is a real barrier to entry. Uh, and, and, you know, some of the conversations we, we have are really like where, you know, how are you going to change your budgeting to increase your sustainability, um, metrics? Um, and you know, it's a, sometimes it's a fast process and a company will just commit, you know, X X dollars toward that. And sometimes it's a really slow process, glacial even. Um, but I think that the pressure of the public is really having a massive impact there. Um, and that's, you know, back to what I said very, you know, earlier on in our interview, the power of, you know, the power of belief that things can change, the power of media, the power of young people forcing this, the growing demographic that wants to know Mm -hmm. that where they eat is making a difference is really, really pushing the envelope. And I can't, you know, I cannot 
overstate that who you know whoever's listening to this you know <laughs> make sure that wherever you're eating you're asking that question because the more you ask the question is like you know how are you meeting your sustainability goals you know are you serving any upcycled products um, what percentage you know what percentage of your procurement is going towards sustainably produced products it makes a huge difference and I, I mean, I think fundamentally it's important that, that, and I think the importance of attaching what you're doing to this larger story of upcycle food is is really powerful because, you know, the fact of the matter is as the population increases and as the impacts of climate change continue to worsen, it's clear we need to produce more food, like some estimates, what, what 40, 50% more food in the next, uh, by, by 2050. Uh, and it's obvious that the current way of producing food is is not going to lead us to a good place. And while we need to shift current systems and maybe um, shift to a more planned forward food system, we also have to find ways to capture lost calories in whatever way we can. And if if you're saying 20 to 30 percent of that 40 percent of food wasted that everyone's heard of that that stat now uh, is is being basically wasted in the farm or in fresh cut facilities, the idea that you can then capture those calories, I really think of it as like we are wasting calories everywhere in all kinds of ways. And how can we, instead of producing new calories, just find better ways to route those calories and distribute them in a, in a smart and, and exciting way? Absolutely. And there's some really interesting work. There's a, a professor at uh, UC Davis named Ned Spang uh, that's working on a project actually to measure the lost calories in firm, you know, in food that never leaves the firm gate. And I think that once people start to hear those, those real statistics, you know, the adoption of companies like ours is going to accelerate. And the global um, food system is very efficient. It's just not very good at evenly distributing the calories that it produces. Right. Uh, and it wastes a lot in the process because it, it prioritizes uh, speed and, and cost and uh, perfection, I suppose, uh, over the fact that you know we 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 ought to be using as much as we can and finding you know other uses for it. So, what's what are you hoping the impact you can make with whether? And I'm assuming you focused on food service. I know you during the pandemic that must have been an interesting channel challenge. We can probably <laughs> yeah. talk for an hour just about yeah, what happened. Let's in not, the but yeah, we're we're on the other side of that one now. But yes, I mean we. <laughs> Although, I mean, I have to say, you know, we, we, we more than survived because the value proposition of our company is creating access. And during the pandemic, of course, there was so much food that had been, you know, contracted that was getting dumped. And we had a really, you know, we, we wrote and, and received a really amazing grant from Refed uh, as part of their Refed COVID Solutions um, Fund program to upcycle a large amount of, of vegetables that were being, you know, would otherwise have been dissed under into a healthy vegetable stew for distribution to food banks. Uh, and we did that in collaboration with Table to Table. Uh, which is one of the largest food distributors in northern New Jersey, it was very successful. We were able to do it partly because of COVID, um, but now we're in a kind of version 2.0 of that. We just received support from the Kroger Zero Waste Zero Hunger Foundation, uh, in addition to working with uh, Danone Communities to develop a healthy meal in a carton 
made from upcycled vegetables with the full nutrition of, you know, of a meal with the calories of, you know, comparative calories to uh, a high school uh, lunch. So about, you know, 750, 800 healthy calories. So it's a, it's a vegetable stew with, you know, other ingredients. And when it, when it comes out, I'll be happy to <laughs> have another, have another podcast to advertise the, the product itself. But, but that product is going to be available for food banks and emergency food, as well as a retail product. So, you know, really looking at combining better nutrition, the nutrition of vegetables that otherwise, you know, would have lost nutrition and lost environment, you know, lost, uh, lost, um, uh, labor, land, water, fertilizer, uh, from not being, uh, from not being purchased from farms, uh, into a product that, you know, creates better nutrition for people and, and better access to healthy food. So, you know, I see that, that movement in our company is, you know, a through line, you know, through COVID and now sort of transforming to the next level. And where will that be available? I was that will that actually be sold at Kroger stores or is this bigger? You know, no, no, no promises yet. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're working on all of that. Um, but we are the pi the pilot, um, the pilot will be available, uh, in, in food banks and in a couple of retail locations and, and beyond. Um, and the, the product comes out this fall. Um, I'll be able to tell you in about a month where it's going to launch. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay. And in terms of uh, your existing, I, I know you said you mentioned earlier, you work with Compass Group. Is that continue? Is that continuing to expand? Is that part of your, your, your current distribution strategy? Yeah, we have, we have an incredible relationship with Food Buying Compass Group. Um, we were, invited uh, into the first accelerator for minority and women-owned businesses. We, we're also, I mean, we are, you know, absolute sustainability company, but we're also a certified women-owned business. Um, and we were invited into the accelerator for their first accelerator. Um, and it also during COVID. And we were able to, I mean, first of all, we learned a ton about so many things, uh, all, you know, many difficult, <laughs> many difficult aspects of the food system, but also, and I would say they, they would agree with this. They learned a lot too about how hard it is for you know, for startups to really get rolling with big food distribution. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, all the companies that are part of that program, I, I really feel like we've, you know, we've broken the ice for a lot of others to, to follow just in terms of like, you know, getting your product onto the mug and, you know, filling out the endless paperwork and all the compliance necessary. And, and, um, so we now work with, with a number of the compass, uh, compass groups, and kind of ever expanding, plus now um, some of the membership as well. So they've been incredibly supportive um, of us, and really, and also because it's a it's a priority for the company. You know, sustainability. They've made mm -hmm. very big sustainability commitments, and they have to meet those commitments to their public and to their shareholders. So, um, you know, we've been we've been lucky to work with amazing people there, and it's and that's where I think sometimes other startups are very suspicious of big companies. You know, for for good reason, and there are a mm -hmm. lot of terrible things that do happen. 
um, we have been very lucky to develop great relationships with a couple of, of big companies that, you know, are truly committed with amazing people. And we can make so much more impact so much more quickly through those partnerships. Um, you know, and the, the, we have a partnership with the known communities. They support, you know, they're supporting some R and D development. They, you know, help us with market research. They've, you know, looked at our packaging and given us a lot of feedback, you know, in terms of like all the things that they spend millions of dollars on, you know, <laughs> researching that we would, we otherwise would not have access to. Um, and, you know, all part of their own, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion programs, sustainability programs. Um, so these programs that big companies have, when they're well done, you know, they, they can do a lot of good. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's definitely one one thing I noticed early on about your company is that you very early in a very early stage, relatively, you aligned with 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 some bigger players that would afford you that level of scale that every startup wants to um, eventually get into. So I think that's an it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking in the beginning is that the the way to truly bring about change in our industrial food system is to find these hybrid solutions, find ways to get the big guys to uh, plug into innovative projects like yours that are happening. And then maybe they can be the catalyst for you to get uh, more distribution, more know-how, more access to capital, uh, and whatever it might take for us to truly, you know, because the fact of the matter is, are we serious about making a change or not? And I think that's a question that everyone needs to ask themselves is, are we just doing this because we've got to do something or are we really serious about this, this, this issue of um, making our food system more sustainable and addressing issues like food waste? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I mean, I, I, something that is um, just in the DNA of matriarch is, you know, both my business partner, Joyce Huang and I, um, I mean, Joyce, you know, started off in banking. Um, so she, you know, she comes from, you know, she, she has that background. Um, you know, she's very serious finance person, which every business needs. Um, but we both work together in the nonprofit world for, I mean, I worked in the nonprofit world for over 20 years and she was the CFO at the Sylvia center with me. So we have a very good working relationship but we run our business um, in a very lean way, in the same way a nonprofit is run. But the value proposition of what we do is very real. And I think that, you know, in this sort of new world of social impact businesses, you know, we are, you know, no one questions our authenticity. Um, and that has been also you know, very powerful, um, that's been very powerful for our acceleration and our partnerships, um, because we are, you know, we're not, we are not extractive and we are, you know, we are truly looking for partnership that can advance the cause of what we're doing. Um, but as a business, Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I really, I, I really believe in the, the ability for business to change, you know, to change things for the long term. Um, you know, as I said before, you know, I think the nonprofit world has, has, it's, has great value on the 
big fan of, you know, a lot of philanthropy, but uh, if you want something to be sustainable, you know, business is, business is honestly the way to go. And I'm thrilled that, you know, social impact businesses Mm -hmm. are a thing now, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they weren't a thing 10 years ago. I mean, my kids, I have have three sons and they're always saying, ma, you know, why didn't you do this sooner? It's going so well. And I was like, because when I was, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, like, you know, coming into the working world, you eat, if you wanted to do something good, you know, you went to the nonprofit world. If you mm-hmm. wanted to make money, you went to into business. Now you can do both. Um, and so, you know, that's really fantastic. And not every business has to follow the same model, right? Even no. within the food industry, you see a lot of, I mean, I mean of course, there are trends. And if you follow where, where investment uh, capital is flowing, you'd think that there's only one or two things you sh- people are doing in the food industry. When in fact, there's a multitude of solutions and they all have maybe different rate of return for those investors. And, and I think uh, we need not to say one is better than the other. I think we need all of it. And I think, frankly, we, we don't pay enough attention to unique and kind of um, more longer term solutions like... Um, like what you're doing, where it's not a quick fix. It's not like an easy replacement to an existing product. Um, not to say that it doesn't have tremendous national and potentially international growth potential. It, it does, but it's it's not it's not a clear linear path because you're kind of you're kind of a CPG company, but not really. Uh, I would say maybe with this retail <laughs> entrant, you're you're now becoming us. You're you're sort of stumbling into becoming a CPG company, but a very different uh, supply chain than typical CPG companies and a very different brand story. So I do think like, maybe now it seems out of the box, but hopefully in the next five to 10 years, businesses that are that sit slightly outside the clearly definable norms um, become more commonplace. And some of them exist to partner with big companies and enable them to perhaps shift. And I think it's I think it's a lot. I see a lot of your nonprofit background in your approach to matriarch foods without you. I'm sure you're aware of it, but it's I can see it uh, in, in the way the business is set up. Absolutely. But I would say, you know, I just don't think any human being who looks I mean, and maybe I'm just <laughs> this is like, you know, this is this is my old, you know, whatever. I don't know how to describe. I'm not going to I'm not going to describe myself. But how can you look at the world right now and know that so few people have so much money that one of them spending two percent of what they own could solve hunger for every single person on the planet for a year. Now that is just insane. And, you know, so everyone needs to pitch in a little bit of their return, of their return. You know, it's, and, and we're, you know, we aim to be profitable in, you know, in not too long, a long a period of time. Um, you know, we're not, you know, we're not a charity. Um, we want farmers to be paid properly for the food they grow. We want, you know, our processors to make money. We want our investors to have a return. You know, I would say in our investors, and, and I feel very um, happy and proud 
that our entire group of investors are all impact investors or investors who are very serious about supporting uh, women-owned businesses, um, you know, they know they're not going to get like 10x in three years, but they believe in what we're doing and they believe that there's going to be a return and that return is a blended return. You know, Mm -hmm. some of it is financial and some of it is environmental and some of it is social. Um, and that's, that's just right balance. Um, you know, obviously like I'm doing this, so I think it's the best way, but, but it's the, it's the fair way, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Um, and you know, we're, we're going to give back, you know, more than, more than we took in every way, you know, from our investment to, you know, to the world we live in. That's a great way of looking at it. Um, I feel like I have to ask you this question because you're based in New York City and um, I'm sure you've been uh, keeping up with some of the recent developments in on the food policy front in New York City as it relates to schools and hospitals. Um, where does matriarch fit into all of this? Wow. Well, I'm, I feel very uh, hopeful that the city is making commitments to good food purchasing, to better quality food, to more vegetable forward meals, to more regionally produced food. I feel strongly that that cannot be an unfunded mandate and that that agenda needs to be incentivized and made accessible to all kinds of businesses. And I'm hopeful that with some of the people who are, you know, working on this right now, uh, that we will, that we'll start to move to start to move the needle a little bit more quickly than, than has been uh, true for the last, you know, five or six years. The Hudson Valley is full of food. There are a million school children who eat every day in this city. Um, and, you know, we should be connecting those dots much more quickly. Looking far ahead as we, as we wind down this conversation, I, I love to ask this forward looking question because it's, you know, it allows us to dream a little bit and, and hope for a better future than what seems possible, at least right now. Um, so I give the year 2050, um, if you look ahead to the year 2050 and if, if you were to be hopeful and optimistic and also successful with your endeavors with Matriarch Foods, what would you like the food system to look like in the year 2050? What do you envision it to look like? I, I envision the food system in 2050 as a fully circular, zero-waste food system where you know there are cooperative uh, groups of regional farmers who work together to um, get their products both fresh and processed to regional markets, sort of creating a geogra- creating geographic resiliencies of better quality food for all people, and that large scale food production, you know, supports those endeavors uh, fully. And the idea of get big or get out is no longer any phrase we ever think about 
ever again. Um, and that we've somehow, you know, that we, that we've been able to kind of marry, uh, the idealistic rural past with the technologically savvy and healthier environmental future. So maybe we can go back to the land, but uh, use technology for our benefit and, and, and not to actually cause new problems. Um, um yeah. and I appreciate your time today. This has been, uh, a great conversation and I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with matriarch foods next thanks for having me you've been listening to eat for the planet with nil zacharias if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support all you have to do is subscribe to the show and rate and review it to learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening.